Hey there, Emo for Easy Listeners, Drew here. The episode you're about to listen to is recorded live from ACOEP's Scientific Assembly 2021, the all-virtual event where we were able to have lunch and learn sessions with the EMO for Easy crew talking about some really important topics in medicine. This topic was violence in the workplace, specifically in the emergency department, and we were so glad to be able to bring it to you. I was joined by my co-hosts, John, Andy, and Tanner, as well as our blog editor, Patricia Capone. She's a fourth-year medical student at Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine, and an amazing guest, Dr. Kat Ogle. She's an associate professor of emergency medicine at George Washington University and brings incredible knowledge on this topic. Don't forget that we are the official podcast of the ACOEP. So please check out the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians at acoep.org. And don't forget to check us out at emovereasy.com for more amazing episodes. All right, let's get on to the show. So when we think about violence in the ED, I think we've all been on this shift. Um, you know, I, I, we, there were a couple of different case fitness that we could try. So I was working a clinical shift uh, in the recent past where, you know, one of the patients we're going to talk about is we had a patient who was brought in with concern for a psychiatric issue. This heralds back a couple hours to where John and I were on listening to Heath Jolliffe's talk about the excited delirium patient. And we had a patient who came in excitedly delirious. Um, and as we were trying to evaluate, is this psych? Is this drugs? You know, security wasn't really at the moment worried that the patient was going to, was going to get violent. And kind of out of nowhere, the patient snaps, lunges across the room and begins to choke one of my nurses. And so when we think of violence in the ED, this is one of the stark comparisons we have, but I think we've all seen a version of this, right? I think everybody can nod their heads and say they've seen a version of this. And whether it was to another staff member or even to themselves, um, when you guys think of violence in the ED, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? First thing that comes to mind for me is that feeling of awkwardness and unease um, that I get when I'm in a room with a patient and I realize I feel compromised. There's something that just has, and it, it not doesn't necessarily always mean that there's true violence that's going to happen, but that feeling beforehand where you realize, Ooh, and that's not a fun feeling. I, I really, really dislike it. Yeah. I'll, I'll be honest. Um, first one for me is, is anger. Um, I authentically am there to help people and, um, to do the very best I can for, for my fellow human. And I love the people that I work with. And, um, I get really upset, um, about the thought of violence occurring around me. Um, and, uh, um, and, and personally being harmed, but someone around me being harmed as well. I get really angry about it. I think it's also, it's also interesting for me because I, I don't know if any of y'all have ever watched my uh, talk with uh, Feminem or Fix, but I shared my own personal experience being a survivor of child abuse and being a witness to intimate partner violence with my mom. And because of my own personal history with physical violence, uh, it hits me differently depending on the, the tone in the department. Um, so sometimes I'm just hyper acute and I'm aware it's going to happen before anybody else is, um, just because it's, it's ingrained into my soul. Um, and other times it's very, uh, triggering for me and I have a visceral response and I have to turn off the visceral response and go back into doctor mode. Um, and then I'll unpack that thing that I put away later, you know, in the week or whatever with my therapist. Um, 
but it's 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 challenging because you know there there is there are times where it induces a fear response as opposed to the fight response. And then when I was pregnant, it was mostly fight. Like people would get and I would go full. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you're gonna you're gonna come at me. I'm gonna come at you. I was not doing the right thing. The hormones were not good for me. Um, <laughs> they were not good for my my de escalation techniques. I was also a little bit younger then, so. Yeah, I think for me as a med student, it's most it's more the fear than the fight. Um, I think because I don't know that I was ever really taught like what to do when a patient gets violent or, you know, until I started looking into the topic a little bit more, it was it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, there are de-escalation techniques and there are things that I can do to make sure that I am safe and make sure that I'm keeping the door open, keeping me between, you know. Uh, the patient in the door and things like that. So I think initially, definitely uh, scared. Yeah, I've definitely walked into a room and and reoriented my residents and I'm like, you're not in a safe position. We're just gonna, you're just gonna move over here with me. <laughs> well, and Kat, that gets to an awareness issue. And I think that's one of the mm-hmm. problems with violence in the emergency department is we're not always aware of the situation in which the patients become violent. We have agitated patients all the time in the emergency department. And agitation doesn't equal violence, but sometimes it does. And so it's picking up on clues that sometimes exist and sometimes don't exist as to the patient that is going to become violent. And then sometimes there's patients that aren't agitated at all, that all it takes is something to happen where they snap and they become incredibly violent. I mean, the probably the most terrifying situation I was in was a um, psychiatric patient who was incredibly calm. In fact, overly calm. Looking at his shoes, a huge gentleman. I mean, I mean, three times my size. Very strong. Looks like he could crush me with his hand. And I start asking him questions, and he doesn't even look up. And he goes, "Doc, right now, all the voices in my head are telling me to hurt you, and I'm doing everything I can not to." And I was out of that room faster than anyone could be out of that room because that was a clear indication of violence where I had no clue that I was walking into a situation that was potentially charged. And so awareness is really difficult. And so we, like you pulling your resident out and and recognizing, showing them that they're in a bad situation at the moment, they probably had no idea what situation they were in because they thought this is just an agitated patient that a little medication, a little, you know, maybe verbal de-escalation, I can de-agitate them. But it's a matter of what happens if they continue to escalate. Is violence the next step or is it just a bigger fighting match or, you know, a, a bigger yelling match that happens? Um, and I don't know mm-hmm. that I have the answer to that either, but it's, that's the really scary and tricky situation to me. Yeah, I, I think I, the other thing that – no, go ahead, Andy. I was going to say, like, I, I love the people bringing up all the emotions because I still remember, you know, when I was writing – when I was helping uh, Patricia write this, Alan, I remember pre-med Andy who was an ER tech – who was part of the department's muscle that we would have manpower alerts. And the idea was get as many people at the door as possible to get these people to deescalate and sit down. And then med student Andy, who got choked out by a demented psychiatric patatient and didn't want it like this way. I remember this lady with like 50 pounds and I, I wasn't going to physically do anything to her because she didn't know what she was doing to physician Andy, who now is more about like what, what Dr. Ogle mentioned was, trying to rearrange the room to make sure that the patient doesn't feel intimidated and they don't feel like they need to trigger and go off. Um, and sometimes that includes getting your security to back off, having police if they're mm-hmm. present leave the room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's kind of interesting because I think all of the fields are appropriate, but as as physicians and providers, we're supposed to be able to read the room and help orchestrate it to where we can avoid people getting in the scenario that they're in. 
Yeah, I was going to add that I think that the pandemic has added another layer of stress for everyone that is making it more challenging to remain level-headed and cool-headed when things escalate. And and I think that sort of giving ourselves uh, acknowledging that our bandwidth is a bit stretched and being able to recognize when our peers bandwidth is being stretched and our, you know, colleagues and in the hospital, in the tech staff, in the nursing staff, like having someone take a step back and, and go take a walk because you can see that their interaction is, is antagonizing a patient who has the potential to escalate. Yeah, when, when we start looking at the, just to kind of give some data for the background, I mean, when, when Patricia and I were making this outline, it, I, I thought the number was big, but 70% of people who work in the emergency department, so physicians and nurses, have felt intimidated and concerned for workplace violence, and about half of those have experienced workplace violence. So that's a huge number. I think, again, as I was telling the story, I think all of us have either witnessed it or been a part of it or received it ourselves. Um, so when we think about what are some of the the first initial indicators of, you know, we talked about a couple of things like in the room, uh, things we should look for. What's the one thing that you look for in a room to be like, there's something wrong with this patient. We're, like, I need to, I need to protect my staff. I need to protect myself. What, what are some of the triggers you guys notice when you take care of these folks? Crouching tiger. Yeah. They're like, if they're, if they're in, if they're getting into a fighting stance, like you, like if you've ever done any sort of martial arts or anything like, like if they're getting ready to launch, that's, that's like, and it's, it's just, again, it's an awareness It's looking at their body language is looking at the way they're holding themselves, looking at the way they're posturing, looking at sort of where their weight is, you know, like someone can be really mad, sort of reclined in the stretcher and like yelling at you and screaming at you. And they're not as concerning as someone who's like up on one knee, you know, like rocking back and forth. They're like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready it's to very go. similar to reading like an animal, like a, whether it's a dog or, yes. or anything else where you can physically see that that animal is ready to do something. And that's yeah, very much. So I, I think for me, the, the one thing that I typically try to do is eye contact. Where are their eyes? Um, a lot of people will give away how they're feeling with their eyes. You know, they say it's a window to the soul, right? And you can see things through just by seeing someone's eyes. And, and in Drew's case, the lack of eye contact is also disturbing. Um, and so it's, it's one of those things where just trying to see where what your the vibe you get when you're looking at their face and what they're look, giving back to you um, can be can tell a lot. Yeah, and I think all of this um, incorporates some element of body language into it. I really look for like the clenching and unclenching of the fists and the, the repetitive motions, what they're trying to do. But I think one thing that's, and this is so important, and everybody that has ever worked with me knows how um, intent I am about going in the room when EMS gives you a report, um, using the information that's there. If EMS tells you that the patient was worked up on scene, there's a chance that they'll get worked up again. It doesn't mean they're gonna. Maybe things are better now because they're in a different environment. Yeah. But but knowing that that propensity is already there and has already happened, um, I find that those patients tend to be quicker back to that state. Um, so using that and not being surprised when someone says, you know, they were fighting with the cops on scene. As soon as everybody leaves and leaves the one nurse in the room, 
are they going back to the state where they're going to assault that nurse? Yeah, it's funny when you guys think about when you guys talk about body language. Another big cue for me is uh, John mentioned the clenching of the fist. Is the ones unfortunately the ones I've been involved with lately? They're the pacers. Like you walk in the room, and it's amazing the momentum you can get that if you're going back and forth in the same 15 feet, and then something happens that back and forth can become a very quick sprint towards a staff member, whether it's a nurse, a tech, a security guard. Um, and so I, I think there's a, a combination of factors. When, when, when you're trying to figure this out, what, how much does, um, at least in your experience, because there is some data about this, in your experience, how much of this do you think has to do with intoxication versus baseline psychiatric issues? I think it's really mixed, right? I, it, alcohol lowers people's barriers to do stupid things. Um, I, I think at least some of us on this uh, podcast can, can say that for themselves probably. Um, but psychiatric issues also lower that same barrier, right? But it, cause it, it causes a different arrangement. And I don't know that in my mind I can separate between the two. And certainly I'm not willing to make that assumption with the patient in front of me that just because they're drunk doesn't mean they're not going to become violent. And just because they're a, a psychiatric patient that they have a acute psychiatric illness, acute psychosis going on, that they are going to be violent or not going to be violent. I think that's a really dangerous place to put yourself in from a mindset standpoint. Yeah, I think we have to be very careful about the assumptions that we make about patients who have mental health disorders. And, you know, it's, it's by and large been my experience going back all the way to being a nurse it's by and large been my experience that folks specifically with schizophrenia and paranoid schizophrenia they are very verbal but they are incredibly rarely to be physically aggressive they make a lot of noise and they they you know they disrupt the environment but they very rarely have, unless there is a co-ingestion and some other sort of um, substance involved, I, I, it's been, I could probably count it on one hand, and I've been in patient care since 97. Yeah, um, I, I love that you bring that up because it's, uh, when, you, when you bring up psychiatric issues, one thing, and when I was doing some research, they're mostly disruptive, but they're not just like, uh, or they're, they're not like just they're sorry they're distracting but not disruptive is the term i saw in a couple papers where like you said they will be distractions they you will be at the bedside multiple times but they also know where the line is somewhere in their subcut it's like all right so I, i'm going to act this way but they also know that like if they go beyond that line things get different um where and if you look at the literature it's actually mostly found to be in people who are intoxicated from some form of a drug or an or a, a co-ingestion to where there is this assumption that it's psychiatric, but that's actually not the case. Um, it's usually people who have comorb, like something else on board um, in terms mm -hmm. of, a you know, they're hyponatremic, they're septic, and they're delirious, or they've got a medication on board. So uh, I, I bring that up mostly to destigmatize. These are not crazy psych patients. These are typically, mm -hmm. you know, the people that, were, that come in with uh, different drugs on board that lower their ability to an, uh, make good decisions, I guess is the way we can go about it. So. I also think it's a, it's an a interesting opportunity to think about trauma-informed care because some of the patients that come in who come in accompanied by police for whatever reason or come in, you know, restrained by EMS for whatever reason, we have to be very careful to take that information but also to give them a clean slate. And if they begin to escalate, to think about why they're behaving that way as opposed to uh, or what happened in their near life 
that is leading to that behavior as opposed to why they're being such a jerk or why they're being so disruptive or why they're being so obnoxious. Yeah. Like, what is it that happened in their recent past that's informing the way they're behaving? Because if you can get to the human side of it, a lot of times that's where the de-escalation occurs. Yep. And, and to that point, you know, one of the things that I, I like from the EMS uh, providers and that I will ask is, what changed at the scene? What made them calm? And a lot of times you'll find it was X person was led away by police. X, X thing happened. And so that gives you some informed clues as to how you can keep that from happening uh, again in your own department. If you know that, you know, mom coming back is going to escalate this, let's get everything wrapped up before we let mom come back. Or let's go meet mom out front and, and get mom's perspective before we, before we bring the two together. Um, and sometimes that, that requires a change. You know, some of, the, some of the positive changes, I try and find positive changes from COVID, are that we're not so quick to bring people back like right now. Um, and that 10 to 15 second pause of does this person need to be in the room makes a difference at every level, whether you're an ER tech, whether you're a nurse, whether you're a social worker, whether you're the doc, we think about people coming into the room immediately before we, we just let that happen. John, I thought you were going to mention your friend, Hal, who always seems to deescalate the situation. You know, Hal Paradol. Oh, yeah. oh, I know Hal. Okay. Very familiar. Hal and Dro hang out a lot. Yes. So before we get into into when and like who do we chemically sedate and who we don't, there's some interesting things in the comments I want to bring up. So, um, you know, how does this go into effect? So let's say you 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 see workplace violence. We all work in different states. Well, not all of us. Drew and, Drew and John work in different uh, in the same state. But how do you go about it? So let's say you've Pods. been assaulted. At different pods, um, you've you've been assaulted or you've been a part of, of an assault. What is your department's um, view on that? Is it kind of a well, this happened, or is there a formal process on how you guys take care of it? I, I will, yes, yeah, I will say this. This is one of my um, areas of passion in violence in the ED. It's this um, it's this stigmata that we've created for ourselves. Um, a lot of places, uh, and I'm not talking about where we're employed specifically. I've looked at a lot of these uh, events. And there are a lot of places that have a written policy and then the reality policy. And the, the written policy is usually something to the effect of we have a zero tolerance policy, blah, blah. The reality is often that there is fear and shame and fear of loss of work and repercussions and... Um, this perceived stigma of being a victim and that you're going to be viewed differently by your patients and coworkers that is incredibly crippling. Uh, and I have, I have seen it in uh, my colleagues and I have, um, I have been very blessed not to have expressed it a hundred percent, but I've had that feeling before um, where if this goes this way, people are going to think this about me. And I write this incredible story um, and it does, it has nothing to do with the hospital having a policy of zero tolerance. Honestly, I'm thinking about um, Patricia here. Uh, it just because you had mentioned this earlier, Andy. Medical students one of the groups I fear about the most. Right, you're on a rotation, you get assaulted by a patient. Not your fault. Everybody cognitively knows that. But how do you feel now? Like you're take if you're injured, you're taking up time of the staff, and now there's this paperwork, and this is a place you really want to come. 
I mean, that would be mortifying, but it absolutely shouldn't be. I mean, you were the victim. Mm-hmm. And also, like, there's no real good place for us to report that, I don't think. Because we rotate around through so many hospitals, it's kind of something that our school has to own. And then, you know, like I've fortunately never been in a situation where I've physically gotten hurt, but I've seen it. And a lot of times I feel like if someone, if you, like, see violence, but let's say nobody actually gets hurt and we were able to kind of de-escalate, nobody reports that. So I feel like it gets wildly underreported also. Yeah, I think um, I'm kind of in a similar scenario as med students in the fact that I travel for work and I'm in new places all the time. I have no idea what the process is at any of these hospitals because I'm there and then I'm gone after however many months. So unless something actually happens while I'm there, there's a good chance that that's going to get glossed over. Most likely, I would guess most places have some like reporting system set up because they're probably required to. But the question is, is how, like, like John was pointing out, how easy is it to find? How well is it followed up on? Um, and I think that's going to be a really site to site basis. Yeah. It's again, supporting the same study by ASEP. So it was the no silence on ED violence um, study. It said there's often no reporting mechanism for patients or a place for employees. And if one exists, employees, as Tanner mentioned, it's not part of basic training to know where to find it. Um, reporting violence is time consuming and may require the victim to appear in court. And then some studies have shown that a large number of employees feel that nothing's going to be done anyways. So why would I put myself through the process of all of it? Why it's easier to throw another rug. So the, I mean, these are all legitimate issues that you guys have all brought up. That's been vetted in the research. So, um, what can be done on a systems level? So let's say if, if if we had to design a perfect utopian area where ED violence is not tolerated and how do we go about fixing it, what are some of the, the ideas you guys would want to kind of bring to the table? So can we first talk about tolerance versus, I mean, existence, right? So I think we work in a lot of places where they're going to tell us that ED violence isn't tolerated. I, I think that John and I work in a department where they would say that tolerance is, or violence is not tolerated. Yeah. But that does not mean that violence doesn't exist. And and what we do on a systemic basis is not to actually tell anyone that we have a zero tolerance policy. It's attempting to reduce and mitigate violent acts from being more violent. I, I mean, is that the right the right look? I mean, so like metal detectors, those are great, right? But it doesn't stop somebody from being violent. It just picks up a knife or a gun or, or a weapon that they have on them. Mm-hmm. You know, our security force coming in and hopefully patting down a patient that comes in by EMS. And, uh, you know, if, if everyone listening hasn't seen the videos from a hospital in Columbus, Ohio, from, you know, just under a year ago where somebody made it through via EMS with a gun and there was actually shots fired in the ED. I mean, that's a horrifying thing to look at. And that was just on the other side of town from where John and I work currently. And we changed some of our policies because of that, um, or at least reinstituted some of our policies because of that. But none of this stops violence. And none of this actually says that we have a zero tolerance policy, right? So because it's what you do on the back end after the violence has occurred that really reinforces the zero tolerance policy. Do we get a restraining order against the patient? How does that even work? Because we're an emergency department and we have to see the patient if they have a medical illness. But if it's not a medical illness or that, you know, it, it's such a convoluted and difficult situation that we live in. So we mitigate the risk of severe violence. But how do we how do we actually obtain something that looks like a zero violence department or no tolerance? And I, I don't have any answers. I have a lot of questions. 
You just send a little kid around booping people <laughs> on the nose. Boop. <laughs> that will decrease my that and puppies, right? That would be perfect. Yeah, it's 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 therapy animals and little kids booping. Maybe this people is our gateway into actually bringing puppies into the department. Is we need them for violence control. If, so if you start getting somebody that's really agitated, instead of sending people in with drugs and meds and restraints, we just throw a puppy in there. See what happens. Plus, it's diagnostically relevant. Abuse towards animals is a hot predictor of serial killers. It's a good point. Get them off the street, folks. Yeah. Um, I, I like really, I, you know, I like the idea though of what Drew mentioned, which is, um, which is really what I think is like the first step. Because I agree, I don't, I don't have all the answers, um, but I like the fact that, for example, our department changed. Something happened, and we learned, and we adapted. And mm-hmm. so I think a lot of it is, is having conversations like this where. We talk about violence, not while it's happening, not right after someone had a critical incident, but we talk about it in the, the clear light of day. And we talk about the things that bother people and the things that they wish they had. Um, and I often wonder about what we talk about, which is, um, uh, we kind of talk about it, particularly in the world of like airport screenings and things like that, uh, which Tanner is all too familiar with. Um, what is actually what actually makes you safe versus what gives you the appearance of safety and it's just a waste of time and effort um and that's one of the areas that i really wish we could have more conversation about so john what are some of those examples when you think about things that make us feel safe because i think drew brought it up like metal detectors make us feel safe because if nothing else it takes away violence with guns and knives and blunt objects now blunt objects that they bring into the hospital. We all know that an otoscope in the hand of a, of a person who's intoxicated could be as deadly as a knife. Like We have objects all over patient walls that they can also use against us, but it limits sharp things and things that go boom. So what are maybe some of those other things you think of, John, that make us feel safe but might not actually change? Yeah, something? well, one thing I, I want to say, too, is um, it's part of the language we use. There's nothing that eliminates gunshots and, and knives in the ER. It minimizes it. But how many times do you get called out to a car rescue in the very front and you throw the patient on the gurney and you bring them back to the trauma bay and you give them Narcan while you're doing your resuscitation as anybody would. It's not a, it's not a fault. But then the patient wakes up and they have a knife in their pocket or a gun. Um, I mean, you brought them into your house, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. there is a, there is a, there's a balance there. I think some of the things that, um, you know, I, I don't know. I know in the airline industry, for example, there is um, a huge amount of discussion about, for example, having people take their shoes off. Like, how much safety does this really provide? Or is it more of an appearance of safety? And I, I won't call myself off as an airport expert at all. But if you look at the actual data, hmm, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe think people would be happier and less prone to violence if they could move faster by not having to take their shoes off, right? So there's a trade-off. And always it's to disgusting. Be had. It is disgusting. It's a trade-off to always be had. Um, and so I think that's what I would like to see, though, is some real research on what really does make a difference um, and what really, what's really for show. Because I don't, I don't like wasting money, right? If metal detectors work, and there are lots of great debates out there about whether they work or not. And, I don't even care to wade into it, but what I will say is that there is data out there. 
that, that people that are really smart about this can make good decisions. Um, that's what I would say. I think one other thing that's interesting about this is that we are all of the things that we're talking about, researching this, studying this, it's still very reactionary. It, it, it doesn't get to the root of the problem. And so it get it, like, it makes me think about sort of grassroots organizing and whatnot. And not that we want a bunch of violent patients in a focus group, but maybe patients who have committed violent acts should be part of this conversation. You know, yeah. what was it that, that, contributed to you feeling so out of um <clears throat> so unsupported in this scenario that you you resorted to violence you know and and what is it about this environment that could potentially be more supportive to yeah. you and cat that is such a great allusion back to a topic that i know we have talked about before fundamental attribution error you you just described it beautifully and in a really caring way, right? You didn't just say what's wrong with that person that they acted that way. You, what was in the environment? What was around you, right? Clearly you had stress, clearly, but, but that doesn't mean you're a bad person, right? There, there are, we have all probably encountered people that had a really bad, violent day, and then you see them later or encounter them later, and they're a completely different person. I mean, are they, or is it just mm -hmm. the circumstances they were in? Um, so I really appreciate you, you pointing that out and avoiding the FAE trap. Yeah, I think when we think about that, it's it's one of those where I think when I, again, as, as Kat was saying that, I, I remember the times where I was able to deescalate, and I was able to deescalate just by realizing the triggers in the room. So we bring up you know specific individuals. Sometimes security is not the go-to. Um, as much as I love every security officer I've ever worked with, and there are times where they have saved me, they can be a bigger problem than not. You don't have to bring a junkyard dog in to have a conversation with somebody to be realistic. You can just have a realistic conversation. Um, you know, you think about intimidating factors. I still remember a case I had early on as intending, uh, working by myself where the patient wasn't talking and then she escalated. And what it came down to was is that she had been sexually assaulted about 12 hours before she came in. And unfortunately, our male nurse had a great likeness to the person that did it to her. And so him going into the room was what triggered her. She punched a staff member. You know, we did everything. But at the end of the day, it was just we didn't recognize the trigger and didn't identify it. And so we made her feel unsafe. And justifiably, I probably can't argue that I'd have the same reaction she did if somebody who was identical to my the perpetrator came in to take care of me. And so I think it's just looking for those little, you know, the soft signs of what we do and some of those small triggers, um, I think, go a long way, and, and they, they get glanced over. And, and I think too many times we rush to other interventions and just don't take a, take a time out, as Drew likes to do. Take a time out, reassess the situation, and kind of figure out what you have to do to, to modify things. So maybe it's always interesting when I do that to a patient, and sometimes they respond, and sometimes they're essentially like, no, doc, go time out yourself, right? And, you know, that doesn't turn out well for me. That doesn't turn out well. I tell my son all the time. I'm like, mommy needs to take a time out. He's like, why? Why are you going away? I'm like, no, I just, I just need five minutes, buddy. I just need five minutes. Trust me. You need <laughs> to take five minutes, but that's, you need to take five minutes. you're going to be, <clears throat> you're going to be much happier at the end of this conversation. If you just give me five minutes of space. Right. Andy. So <laughs> maybe if we like to go back to what you're, I think our, we were trying to get to, which was like the, the systemic level type stuff. You know, maybe what we're doing right now is exactly probably that first step, which is create a workplace violence committee. 
and, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. start the conversation. If that's not already part of your system, it needs to be. Because as we've kind of pointed out, reactionary is how this is typically worked up when we probably should be doing it ahead of time. The hard part about that is if you do it well, you won't have any issues and you know, it's, it's harder to see the credit of where it's, when it's, where it should be given. Um, if that makes sense. So I think that's probably the answer to the systemic level stuff is you got to have a committee that's working on it. And if you don't, you're behind. Maybe we need that uh, whiteboard that says it's been, it's been three days since we've had a workplace violence incident. Yeah. And maybe that's the first step is you put it up and just make it a a culture thing at the, at your department. If you see anything, that's a workplace violence, let's, let's start over and just see if that starts to create awareness um, that a, that a workplace violence committee can work. Yeah. You may have to start with hours to be fair. Otherwise (laughs) you're just never going to get past. I mean, there are the days where it really feels like that. I mean, think about it. If you know, what Patricia was alluding to earlier, and and Kat as well, the number of times it's underreported. Um, it's a huge area in quality and risk management. Uh, the underreporting yeah. of the near miss, right? You should you should get a, a Snickers bar when you de-escalate a situation. Like that should come down from up on high because you just saved lawsuits and injuries and so many things. Um, and it's like you're the unsung hero, right? You're the you're the person that pushed the kid out of the car path and they fall down and get up and say thank you mister or thank you ma'am and they wander off right but but you change the life of so many people when you do that um, it's sad so what would kind of and be our, I, oh, go for it Patricia I was just going to say I know I keep going back to med students but <clears throat> like med students and interns and just <clears throat> sorry, making it a part of the you know the conversation from the beginning. Like we, as third and fourth years, are you know in the department, but then we're also rotating through you know inpatient psych and even internal medicine. I've seen it. Um, so I think that it's definitely something that needs to be part of like our didactics from day one, whether that's you know from our school or if it's coming from residency programs when we're on shift or, um, you know, not on shift, but in the department and that kind of thing. So I do have a question for you on that, Patricia, because I think that we do like we drill this, like we have simulations about this and nobody takes it seriously. They're like, Oh, why do I have to practice this stupid stuff again? I already know and, how to do this. And I'm like, you don't, though. That's why we're practicing it. Right. Like, I, I think it's probably less of an issue with medical students, perhaps, than some of our uh, some of our residents who have gotten a little bit salty. But, like, how how would you design an educational intervention that would be that, – that learners would be receptive to? I think it might even be – a combination, like it could be a combination of kind of what you were talking about before where, you know, we can, we can incorporate patients that maybe have been violent before. And that might actually kind of be a little bit more of a, that might hit home a little bit more of, you know, having a patient that said, you know, I was going through this and this is what happened. And this was kind of the breaking point for me. And, you know, and that could be like the start of it. And then, you know, going into more of, 
these are the things that you need to do to keep yourself safe. Um, and even kind of like Drew was saying with being aware in the room, but also being aware before you go in the room. Sometimes, you know, if you know that you're going in to deliver news that the patient does not want to hear, for example, you know, you're putting them on a medical hold or you're putting them on a psych hold. Um, they're not going to want to hear that they're stuck in the hospital. Um, so knowing that before you go in, and that's not necessarily something that us as med students do, but, um, as residents, it definitely is. And I think that sometimes you might think that it's no big deal because we do it all the, you know, it's something that we do fairly regularly. And so it may just seem like just another procedure that you go through or, oh, I'm going into, you know, like when you go consent a patient for a procedure or something like that. But it needs to be something that you, like we've been saying, you know, you take those five seconds, you take that time out and say, okay, what am I going to do to make sure that I'm safe when I go in and, and kind of deliver this news? So kind of like we prepare to deliver bad news to patients whose family members have died and that kind of thing. I think uh, in terms of creating a an environment to learn this stuff and be impactful, probably the most impactful moment I've ever had in that kind of a scenario, like where someone was trying to teach us about uh, workplace violence issues and or self-defense was the day that one of our attendings camp comes in, uh, Dr. Jordan, and he's a martial arts person who taught us self-defense, like physically we, and you know, the day of didactics, it's, you know, some people are not taking it super seriously, like you pointed out, Kat, and it's, it's a little frustrating, but then ever since then, on that day where I learned how to either a remove myself or B have to try to disarm somebody who is too close to me. I have thought about that so often when I'm in those scenarios and it has easily been one of the most influential, influential days of didactics that I have had because I actually physically had to learn, okay, if I'm caught in a corner or I'm too close to a patient, my actual approach is very different than if I have distance between a patient. And, um, and so I think kind of, instead of just talking about it, sometimes you have to be put into it. Um, and so having that physical, mm -hmm. like trying to, uh, my, my attending, you know, quote unquote, going after me and trying to assault me and me having to defend myself actually ingrained a little bit of, oh, oh, this is very different than just sitting in a chair and talking about, okay, if, <laughs> if you have a, a, a violent patient, you should avoid them type of thing. Um, so I, How'd y'all get pet that past the GME office? What the GME office doesn't know won't hurt them. <laughs> <laughs> were there waivers that had to be signed. I mean, this? it was let, let's 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 be clear. It wasn't like we were you know rolling around yeah. doing crazy stuff, but it was more of like going through the motions yeah. physically and feeling what it was mm -hmm. like to instead of trying to run away, you actually are trying to put up like an arm bar mm -hmm. or, or help yourself be safe and um mm -hmm. and and it like at the day of it was kind of a fun, like, quote unquote, break from didactics, because you're physically moving around. But ever since then, man, it is it has changed the way I look and where I sit or how I'm close to patients, because I can now think ahead of time. I hear a didactic proposal for Bingo. next year on teaching faculty how to teach self defense. Work begets work, right? That's how that's what that's what I'm glad you brought that up, Kat, because it was in my brain. But if I brought it up, mm -hmm. it would be shot down. So I appreciate that you brought it up because now the guys, <laughs> there's some extra validation. We can bring it up for another another issue. Yeah, and I 
I definitely echo what Tanner's saying because we did that. We organized something like that for the Women in Medicine Club at my school, and it was it was a really fun time, kind of like Tanner was saying. Like it was really fun. We all got to kind of learn, and one of the um, the OUPD um, officers came and taught all of us how to kind of defend ourselves, and it was more for like you know social settings and when you're walking in the parking garage after work and that kind of thing. But um, yeah, something department specific and like a small ED room and things like that would be, would be really cool. So I think with that, we should, you know, probably start wrapping up here because we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, and I think, you know, maybe some of the, the main take home points here uh, from a systems level, it's having conversations like this, right? I think getting people in a room talking about workplace violence, what we're doing, what we're not doing, what we're missing, maybe where our biases are or our blind spots are, um, and just getting the conversation going if there one that if there isn't already one that's happening, um, and then in terms of individual stuff, we just barely scratched the surface. Um, I, your guys's outline is impressively uh, amazing and in depth, so I think this is definitely something we can do some more of in the future. But from an individual standpoint, uh, any take home points you all have? I, I think it's realizing that de escalation should be a skill that I mean it's a skill. It's not something everybody's blessed with being good at. But you have to practice and get better at. Um, my de-escalation techniques have changed dramatically over the time I've been uh, been, in a, been a resident and attending, to where I now am almost uh, feel defeated if I can't de-escalate a room, um, and I feel like it should be a badge of honor. Like it's, it, it, I should be as good at de-escalating as I am as intubating or putting in a central line or putting in a chest tube. And so this is a procedure, and look at it that way. That when patients come in violent and angry, de-escalation is a skill that should be part of your repertoire. Um, and the standard practice of what we do. I kind of feel like de-escalation is like the BiPAP of intubation, but for agitated, delirious patients, like you should be able to use it 100%. first before you go straight to the tube type of scenario, bef- before you go straight yeah, to the, the chemical restraints. Yeah. But then every once in a while. We'll have to come up with a fun acronym for it, DPAP or something. <laughs> DPAP. Yeah, I think a quick take home would just be um, if you uh, – see something, say something, um, document these experiences, mm-hmm. document these events that, that get by. And um, when you see a, um, when you see a person that is being uh, verbally, or physically or psychologically assaulted, um, intervene, right? You, you, don't have, you don't have to change the world, but just, just start right there, right where it's at, call out the behavior and don't let it, don't let it progress. And also check in on those people after something has happened, because I think that that that's another thing that we do poorly because it makes us uncomfortable. We're like, oh, I'm really uncomfortable watching that really terrible interaction and those horrible words that were thrown out. And then we, you know, we go on with our day because we're ER doctors and we've got stuff we have to do. But like, I think that that is uh, a good way to sort of foster that continued teamwork uh, and make people feel supported uh, when things are, are challenging. All right. Well, I really appreciate everybody coming on and being a part of this part of the, the day. Uh, again, this is our third conference doing emo Reezy live shows. And I feel like every time uh, we, we pick great guests. So thanks so much, Kat and Patricia for coming on. We really appreciate your insight um, and your expertise. And if you've been listening and you want to listen to more conversations like this, please head on over to emoreasy.com uh, where you can subscribe to the podcast, to the, the newsletter that Tanner runs for us, and learn all other kinds of things about our, our show.
Andy, I have a question before you get started. What? How long did it take to cut your hair yesterday? (laughs) So for our viewers (laughs) that watched us yesterday and are now back today, Andy had a very different haircut, very different hairstyle. I I am eminently jealous of the amount of hair that he has on his head. So I realize you can throw all the flack you want right back at me. But how long did that haircut take yesterday? So it was funny. I, I go. I uh, I've been putting off going to the barber. I had this idea. I was going to donate my hair for to make a wig. And then I don't know. Yesterday was like the crowning moment of I was over it. I was an inch and a half short. I wasn't going to make it. So I, I scheduled and I go to the barber and it, it was a longer haircut. Like I I put thirty minutes to get a haircut. It was about an hour and ten minutes. Um, when I sat down, she made the comment that I was finally trimming off my neck sweater. Um, she used that term multiple times and uh, she had to cut it twice and shampoo it twice because it was just more than she could handle with one cut. Shampoo it, it twice? It's nice. Wow. I mean, that is an hour longer than most of my haircuts because it takes my barber only 10 minutes to find the one hair that grew in the uh, three-week intro. Yeah.